Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I have with me Daniel Dennett, the distinguished philosopher and the author of a new book on human consciousness called From Bacteria to Bark and Back. Welcome, Professor Dennett. Delighted to be here. Now, consciousness is obviously a huge, you know, it's been called a hard problem. And what what does the problem consist of? I mean, if, if I understand it rightly, you're arguing either that it's not particularly hard or that it may not be a problem. The so-called hard problem is an illusion. There's many hard problems. What David Chalmers, who coined the term, calls the easy problems. They're plenty hard. Those are the scientific problems. The only thing left over is convincing people that once you've solved the scientific problems, you've solved them all. But that can be done, and that's the course that I advocate. And I think I can explain how the illusion that there's another problem, the hard problem, how it arises, and why you shouldn't take it seriously. You talk at the beginning of your book about somebody else's phrase, I think, the Cartesian wound, and that seems to be one of the difficulties that you have in approaching the subject. Can you talk a bit about that and what you mean by that? Yeah, way back in the 17th century, René Descartes, himself a really fine scientist, in addition to being a philosopher, proposed that the human mind was altogether different immaterial thing, a thinking thing, a race cogitans, that uh, uh, no other organism had one of these. A, a sheep or a dog doesn't have one. They're just machines. But we're not just machines. Our bodies are machines. And then we have this extra immaterial mind, or the soul, which was convenient for Descartes, raised by the Jesuits. And that that's the Cartesian wound, uh, Cartesian dualism. And he didn't, in one sense, invent it but he fixed it in our minds ever since as a sort of unbridgeable gap. And uh, closing the gap has been the uh, task of science ever since. And one of the things that you, you said that it's almost, if I understand you rightly, that it's our ingrained habits of thinking that way that prevent us from, from seeing things straight. Oh, yes. I think that the habits we have are the congenial habits deeply ingrained in us. In fact, they have, a, they have themselves, I think, an instinctual genetic base. When we see something complicated moving, we solve our problem of how to deal with it by attributing a mind to it to see if that works. And usually it works to some degree. And whether you're trying to outthink the, the leopard in the tree or the fish that you're trying to catch or the small child or another human being, uh, the way to do it is to say, what does it want? What does it know? And how can I deal with that? And this creates a class of intelligent agents in our imaginations, which seem to be entirely different from the mere furniture of the world. And finding how to put in one picture both the human beings and the other competent agents, the living, moving things of the world, put that into the same picture with, with, with the atoms and the molecules has, has been, in some ways, the defining task of biology, psychology, and I would say philosophy. Well, that's, that distinction, I think, is something I wanted to ask about because, you know, you're a philosopher, that's your, that's your ostensible job on your passport. Yeah. But it seems to me that an awful lot of what you're writing about is the province of what we ordinarily think of as science. And I'd be interested to know if you could say, do you think there are certain, if you like, truths 
that are discoverable specifically by philosophy and not falsifiable by science or vice versa. Because I think most people would think of philosophy as a sort of rather abstract activity. And your book's full of scientific data, of, you know, quite up-to-the-minute stuff on neuroscience and cell biology. Well, you're absolutely right that there is a tradition of philosophy of being sort of super abstract, like mathematics, and the queen of the sciences, and basically being conducted in ignorance of of science. But actually, that's that's a fairly recent tradition in philosophy. I think it really only goes back to the 19th century. Before that, you, the, the philosophers were deeply embedded in the science of their day. Hume, Berkeley, uh, Reed, Descartes was a scientist. Leibniz and Spinoza were, were scientists. And the tradition of uh, the sort of ivory tower philosopher who's as it were, a mathematician without without all the symbols, is a fairly recent idealization. And I think in the end, it proves to be a, a mistake that philosophy done in such rarefied atmosphere is, is usually very clever fantasy and hardly worth doing because it doesn't have the rigor of mathematics and of course, a lot of mathematics is fantasy, and and nobody knows, nobody cares. It's 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 brilliant structures, intellectual structures, which may someday prove to have some application. But if they don't, that that's fine. But when philosophers invent their abstract castles, it's clear, I think, that they probably won't have much utility. So, is there any philosophical sort of content, if you like, that couldn't be falsified by science? that you would, you would recognize as valuable? I would think not so much propositions as attitudes or perspectives. The, uh, the appeal to reason, the appeal to uh, the ideal of understanding everything, which I think is every philosopher's ideal in some regard, and the appreciation that some of the things we take ourselves to know are profoundly central and all but immovable. One of my heroes and teachers was uh, the late Willard Van Orman Quine, and he talked about the web of belief, and he said at the edges it is, he's talking the web of all belief, all belief and knowledge. Around the edges it answers to empirical facts and experiment. At the center there's nothing that is in principle immovable. But some things are hugely resistant to any revision. But he famously said, don't try to make a sharp distinction between the a priori and the a posteriori, between the analytic and the synthetic. He called that one of the dogmas of empiricism. One of the things that's very attractive about your book is that it allows... I mean, you provide a sort of gradualist account Absolutely. of how we arrived at a kind of self-consciousness, for want yes. of a better phrase. Um, can you talk a bit about that? Because I think you've got a sort of four-step process where you say that there's first creatures that effectively you know, move about entirely on hardwiring and impulse, and then you've got your Skinnerian... Oh, good. Yeah, yes, um, that's, a, that's itself an idealization, but a useful one, I think. The fundamental insight is that all learning is redesign. A learning organism, whether it's a philosopher or a dog or a bird, 
has got to take the design it's born with and bootstrap that into a better design somehow. And the more you look closely at that process, you see it has to involve something like trial and error. And the trials have to be, to some extent, blind or chancy or risky. If you already know, then you're not, then you know it. Uh, and so the first step of this is Darwin's, where you have entities, the simplest bacteria, the simplest organisms. They are pretty much hardwired, can't learn anything. But of course, evolution can improve their descendants by the standard Darwinian process. So that's trial and error where it's done generation at a time. The next category I call, Skinner, I call those Darwinian creatures. Skinnerian creatures, uh, named after the late B.F. Skinner, the behaviorist, I call them Skinnerian because Skinner himself noted that conditioning, behavioral conditioning, his stimulus response conditioning, was the same process as evolution just carried on in the individual organism. It was a uh, another way of doing evolution faster in the individual organism. It has a bunch of candidate behaviors, doesn't know what the right ones are. Those are what he called operants. Organisms just, he would say, emit them more or less at random. They get punished for the bad ones and rewarded for the good ones. And sure enough, pretty soon they've learned how to do the, the better ones. So if they but, survive. <laughs> yeah, they survive. But of course that's risky because you don't, they don't look before they leap. The next step up I call Popperian creatures after Karl Popper, the philosopher who once said that we let our hypotheses die in our stead. We anticipate, we think about courses of action offline as we imagine them and then choose on the basis of our predictions of the outcomes what the best course of action is. And so when we behave in the world, we've already tried it out offline in a sort of simulation in our heads. So those are Popperian. Now, an interest is a suggestion, I think, if I really rightly, that there's some animals might exhibit this sort of behavior. Yes, I mean, this is dolphins, actually this is this is an interesting empirical question of which animals are are really Popperian, and there we see actually that the lines are blurred and gradualist, and that there are some animals that that show some signs of imaginative look ahead but much less than you might hope. I think people who look closely at the evidence are often dismayed to see that their clever dogs and their clever dolphins are not all that good at picking the right thing out in advance, but there's some evidence. The final category I call Gregorian creatures after the late Richard Gregory, dear friend of mine, who argued that our minds are enhanced by thinking tools, which are like words and theories and and telescopes and microscopes and uh, slide rules and all the rest and computers sort of physical and technologies and mental technologies but also mental technologies things like um, cost benefit analysis and calculus and uh, uh, the statistics and probability theory and all the rest and that we're the only species that has not just rich but unbelievably rich treasuries of thinking tools which we carry around in our heads and this enables us to be Popperian creatures with a vengeance. We can predict eclipses and plot. Uh, we're, not, we're not perfect, but our capacity to look ahead and to make judgments about likely outcomes and whether, we appe whether they appeal to us is a fundamental change. It's what 
really distinguishes us from, let's say, or the human thinking process from the merely Darwinian. In Darwinian evolution, when a species is in a, in a local maximum, it's, it's climbed the hill of fitness as far as it can go, there might be a distant hill which would be higher, but they can't imagine it, they can't see it, they can't hope to get there, they can't, there's nothing like that. But we are in a position to imagine those higher peaks and then go about constructing ways of getting there. Does the Gregorian phase go sort of hand in glove with this idea to come back to you know, consciousness and self-consciousness, that level of recursion, where we, as it were, catch yes. ourselves thinking and we're thinking yes. about thinking? Absolutely, absolutely. Some people, I think, make the mistake of thinking that, oh, Dennett might have a theory of self-consciousness, but it's not a theory of consciousness. But I want to say, actually, a theory of consciousness of our kind is a theory of a recursive and reflective property. And explicit self-consciousness is a special talent within that. But all of our consciousness has this power. And it's a power which is not really evidenced clearly yet, I would say, in any other species. You've been called a Darwinian fundamentalist sometimes because you've got a very strong adaptationist position. Mm -hmm. What do you make of the sort of aspects of our thinking tools and our behaviours that don't, on the face of it, appear to have an adaptive use? Are these so-called spandrels? Are they, I mean, you know, art and literature and music? You know, what, what are they for? All right, there's a lot packed into that question. First of all, the term Darwinian fundamentalist was a brilliant coinage by the late Stephen Jay Gould, and it was a clever bit of, of rhetoric but in fact, I'm, I'm just a Darwinian, and he was fighting a rearguard action against a view of evolution which is happily beginning to wane, and people are recognizing that adaptationism is here to stay. You've got to be a careful adaptationist. And being a careful adaptationist means recognizing the question is not always, what's the function of X? How does it benefit the organism? Because sometimes the answer is, it doesn't. You say it's a spandrel. Yes, it's, it's a byproduct of something which uh, benefits something. You always want to ask who gets the benefit, cui bono. But sometimes the answer is surprising. And I, I claim that in particular in human culture, the fundamental insight, the groundbreaking insight that Dawkins introduced with the idea of memes is the idea that memes can have their own fitness. They're just like viruses. And they're not all good for us. Human culture includes the good, the bad, and the awful. And, and some things spread by replication, by differential replication, which we would love to eradicate. They're bad, parasitical, fitness-reducing ideas that nevertheless have tremendous staying power. But those are just the one set of memes. Some memes are simply wonderful. And in fact, the most important thing about cultural evolution is that it creates the space which allows us and only us of all the species on the planet to set aside our Darwinian sumum bonum, making more grandchildren, and adopt other purposes. We can, there are many things to die for. Yeah. Uh, you know, liberty and truth and, and, and democracy and communism and Catholicism and lots of other isms. And we're the only species that does that. Is this what you describe as the process of de-Darwinization? 
De-Darwinization, a term owed to Peter Godfrey Smith, a wonderful evolutionary philosopher of evolutionary biology, is a process where over time phenomena that started out being very Darwinian, very blind, gropey, and sort of blind trial and error can become ever more focused, ever more efficient, with ever more comprehension. Uh, I mean, that's one kind of de-Darwinization. He explores others as well. And so we can diagram this and see how human culture, when it started, wasn't at all like human culture today. The first utterers, the first language users, the first proto-language users had no idea what they were doing. They didn't have to. They didn't know what they had there. Well, it's what you talk about, com- competence versus exactly. competence yeah. without comprehension. And the very capacity to comprehend words was something that had to grow gradually and did, and it follows a nice Darwinian pattern. The first words are, in effect, synanthropic. They evolved as wild species of, uh, that could thrive in human company, but we didn't own them, we didn't cherish them. But then we had domestication of words. This is my vocabulary. I own it. I will decide whether or not to use that word now. Small children don't do that. Yeah, they blurt out whatever they've got. But eventually we become the masters, to some degree, of our own vocabulary. Those are domesticated words. Then we have technical terms, which are sort of genetically designed or memetically designed words. And so today we have intelligent designers, us, human beings. The original human vectors of culture. We're not particularly intelligent designers, but we've seen the rapid, by evolutionary standards, by biological standards, very rapid explosion of intelligent design over the last 20,000 years, 40,000 years. I mean, that rapidity seems to be the kind of really striking disjunction. It is, and and it, it dwarfs earlier rapid biological changes. It is, as Maynard Smith and Zathmary say in their wonderful book, The Major Transitions of Evolution. It's the last great major transition, and it, it changes everything. Does it all, I mean, most, I think, kind of laypersons' lay account of Darwinian evolution would say that it's, it's got a kind of Whiggish tinge to it, you know, because it's across huge populations, it's tied to biology, so it's got to be quite gradual, and, you know, it works on... You know, it doesn't work in this kind of extraordinarily untethered, fast way that cultural evolution happens. Does that mean that it, cultural evolution, as it were, doesn't have the fail-safes? It doesn't have that kind of stability across a population? Well, um, the stability of Darwinian evolution, of course, is the, as you say, it's Whiggish, Whig history in a way. It's the stability of the survivors. And a lot of, a lot of variations die and go extinct childless uh, without uh, thank goodness for them because if it weren't for them we wouldn't get the gradual improvements that we do when it comes to cultural evolution it is much much faster and the stabilizing forces are themselves varying and somewhat unstable as we're seeing right now the very one of the great stabilizing forces in uh, cultural history has been science and the appeal to objective truth. That is now under a sort of attack that was, I think, all but unimagined just a few years ago. We are entering a new epistemological era. I've written about this with the 
computer scientist Deb Roy in a piece in Scientific American a few years ago, we compare it to the Cambrian explosion where the sudden or relatively sudden growing transparency of the ocean led to eyesight, which led to an arms race of both extinction and innovation. And I think this is happening right now. We're entering a period where it's hard to keep a secret. And yet at the same time, it seems to be, I mean, looking at the current political situation, particularly in the States, it's hard to keep a secret, and yet nobody seems to know what's true, which seems to be a parad- that's, paradoxical No, no, that's, that, that's part of the same picture. This is what's so unsettling, is that it wasn't so long ago that everybody thought transparency was just great, and uh, uh, administrations promised a more transparent administration and so forth. But it doesn't take much reflection to realize that actually... You don't want transparency. You want you don't want to be a glass house. You don't want your hopes and plans and fears, your knowledge and your ignorance to be known to everybody. You want to keep your counsel. You want to have a poker face for very good reasons. You cannot be an effective agent unless you can keep your inner state to yourself. And what's happening right now is that every composite agent, every corporation, every religion, every government, every political party, every club, every army is confronting the problem that they are composed of people who are not as docile as the cells that compose a plant or animal. These are people who are curious and communicative. And the doors are sort of flung open. It's very hard now to maintain the sort of discipline that is required to keep a functioning organism together. And this is a very challenging environment in which we now live. What do you think can... I mean, there's there's clearly a difference in some sense between needing to keep your own counsel as a political body or as an army or as a person or in a poker game, and this question of what's verifiable empirically, what's... You know, this idea of truth and post-truth. Can you explain why this idea of post-truth has arisen? Is it people reading too many French philosophers of the mid-20th century? Or Well, um, I've recently suggested that the postmodernists should take some of the blame for <laughs> the current fashion of this sort of post-truth idea. And I think, I think there's some truth in that. <laughs> there's some truth in that. And, and anybody who doesn't believe in truth, basically they're disabled. And anybody who's helped to disable them should, you know, hang their heads in shame. The odd thing, of course, is that people don't really disbelieve in truth. They just are falling for the fashion of disbelieving of truth when they find it inconvenient. They howl like banshees if their car isn't fixed right or if the doctor makes a mistake or if the bridge collapses. They're, they're all for holding people to the truth then. They're great fans of objective truth in those matters, but they tend to have a varying allegiance when it turns to matters political. And this is, it's inconsistent. It's intellectual vandalism of the highest order. I think, for instance, the attack by Trump on the press, that's cultural vandalism. He's without any shred of justification He is attacking the mutual knowledge, the general consensus of what can be trusted from from the world's fact-gathering organizations. 
And he's not going to stop at the press. Uh, he's already beginning to make noises about things like the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And probably he'll, be, he'll go after the stock market and the Dow Jones average next. And the fact is that the nation, the world, human civilization, depends on having reliable, trustable sources of objective truth. And anybody who challenges that the way it's now being challenged in some quarters should realize that they're committing a treasonous act against all of civilization, not just against America or not just against democracy, that we need to have that distinction. Post-truth is one of the ugliest ideas I've ever encountered. Has, this, has it kind of blindsided you? Because until quite recently, you know, you were very strong, you know, a horseman of the new atheism and so forth, and religious ideas were what seemed to be, you know, you were anxious about them being in the vanguard of the counter-enlightenment, but it doesn't seem to be that at the moment. I would say that I, like just about everybody else, underestimated the fragility of consensual knowledge, of the ambient background of reliance on epistemological landmarks, whether it's a map of the world or whether there's a gas station down the road or whether the supermarket is open and all the rest of these facts. And one takes for granted that I know and you know and I know that you know and you know that I know and so forth and so on. And that provides the fabric in which we act. And right now this is being upset in ways that are truly surprising to me, I, I grant, and very dangerous. Now, my joy in the new transparency when looking at religion uh, remains. I think that this will be the great problem that will not really be solved by the world's religions. And it's a, this is a sad, and I've said so in the past, this is, this is going to be a very painful business. People who are deeply committed with all their heart and soul to beliefs that are now going to be threatened that they're, they're going to have a hard time conveying to their children. They're either going to have to imprison their children or find other ways of trying to pass on their traditions to their children. And that is going to be very painful. And a lot of lovely practices and relationships are going to be disrupted by that process. And there's no evil source of these unfortunate. They're, they're, they're a force of nature, and they're going to hit religions particularly hard. And my view is that we should recognize that. And uh, as I counseled in my book, Breaking the Spell, go soft. These things are going to, we don't have to hammer at the door. These processes are already in operation. Our job is to make them happen as gently and as humanely as possible and uh, they're happening. And I think they are, there's backlashes, but I don't think there's any way of stopping that. And I think that's a good thing in the end. I think that getting rid of uh, superstition and the sort of mindless, skeptic-free allegiance to ideas that are quite simply preposterous, I think that's a good thing. I think, that, I think we're 
human beings are going to be grown-ups for the first time, which is good. But we shouldn't underestimate the pain it's going to cause. We should end this on some grounds for optimism. So, Daniel Janet, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. In the magazine book section this week, there's plenty more to engage you. We have Simon Cooper reviewing a book about the edges of Europe, Border. We have A.A. Gill's Collected Journalism, reviewed by Marcus Berkman. Ian Thompson looks at Benito Mussolini's stallion-like behaviour with his lover, Claretta. Julie Burchill reviews Harriet Harman and Jess Phillips' memoirs. And Christian Walmar considers The Night Train and the Demise of the Sleeper 